This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Laura Suter, and on this episode, we'll be talking about how PayPal has jumped on the cryptocurrency bandwagon. And we'll also be looking at whether the stamp duty holiday really was the reason behind soaring house prices so far this year. Joining me today is Tom Selby, who's going to be looking at whether a 9% pay rise is actually realistic for pensioners this year. That's right. This week, we're also going to be talking about what, how one item that could be lying around in your car glove box could land you a £1,600 windfall. But first up, let's look at markets. We've got rumours of a £7 billion bid for Sainsbury's, a sell-off in mining stocks and more supply chain bottlenecks. Lathe Calaf is here to speak to explain it all. So, Leith, take it away. Yeah. Hi, Tom. Yeah, well, let's start with with markets, shall we? So, um, it's August, probably important to point that out, and mm. uh, that means it's really quiet. So, uh, there's not very much happening on, on the kind of um, corporate reporting front. So, any news is big news at the moment. Um, and uh, and last week, we had, you know, a pretty grisly day on the FTSE 100 uh, last Thursday. It fell 1.5%. That's one of his worst p- performances for a little while. Um, largely driven by by mining stocks. There was a big sell-off in the mining sector. Um, um, that's really come from, I guess, worries about the Delta variant. Um, also, some numbers coming out from China suggesting that China isn't perhaps doing as well as everyone was hoping. And that obviously has a big impact on industrial uh, demand for um, uh, for for, uh, for metals and, and, and for mining stocks. Um, and also some worrying about the kind of Fed tapering asset purchases as well. Um, so we saw we saw kind of Rio, BHP, um, Antofagasta, the kind of the big mining companies, all fall five percent on that day. Interestingly, they've all kind of recovered that ground over the week. So a little bit of a storm in a teacup, um, 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 and I think that, as I say, comes down to the fact that you know actually um, any kind of news is going quite a long way at the moment. Uh, and we're also in this kind of kind of waiting kind of stasis game. It feels with the UK market at the moment where. Um, you know, the market is kind of directionless. It's not sure, um, you know, which way the economy is heading, whether we're actually kind of heading for a period of, um, you know, excessive economic exuberance or actually things are a little bit more gloomy. So we seem to swing swing from one to the other. Um, we have had some some news on, on Sainsbury shares, which which broke at, at the weekend. Um, so, so these are just rumours that um, uh, private equity uh, investors are kind of, uh, circling around Sainsbury's now. Obviously, they've been circling around Morrison's, and there's been a deal out on the table for that. Uh, but uh, Sainsbury's shares actually jumped 15% um, on on Monday on the back of those rumours that added one billion pounds to the market cap and took the shares to a seven-year high. So, obviously, every, you know, there's still stuff going on with with Morrison's at the moment. Currently, the the the, the horse with its nose in front is um, uh, Clayton de Billier and Rice, who've got a seven billion pound offer on the table for Morrison's. Um, but, you know, there's been a bidding war there so that there could be some more action to come. I guess there is this quite kind of question of why all the sudden interest um, in, in the UK retail space, which is a kind of fairly slow, slow plodding sector. Um, and I think probably the, the kind of generous interpretation is, you know, the UK is undervalued. Brexit is kind of in the rear view mirror. You know, maybe the kind of oldie and little competition in the sector has, has run its course, so perhaps it's a good investment. I think the perhaps more cynical imp- interpretation is that these supermarkets are sitting on lots of land 
um, lots of building, which is which is um, you know worth quite a lot of money. And if you're private equity, and if you wanted to, um, you could take over those business, sell off those properties, um, and and return to return the capital to shareholders, which would be a nice boon for them. So, um, you know, if you look at uh, where Morrison's is at the moment, it's kind of trading at P of around twenty. Um, so, you know, Morrison's earnings growing at around three to 4% over the next, um, sort of two to three years. You compare that with, with Facebook, which is obviously a very high growth company that's, um, currently trading around 24 times earnings so not a great deal more and earnings there are, you know, kind of expected to go 15%. So there's just something a little bit, a little bit suspicious in the fact that the CDNR are paying a 60% premium for, for Morrison's, but there we are. And then obviously the biggest news that we all saw this week was the fact that McDonald's is running out of milkshakes. That's right. Yeah. One very close to Tom's heart here, I I suspect, is that, (laughs) yes, uh, more supply chain bottlenecks. Um, So we've seen a little bit of this, of course, um, uh, recently. Um, Nando's having to close some restaurants because of chicken shortages. We also saw a company which probably most of us <laughs> won't have heard of before called McBride, which makes um, um, cleaning products for um, own label uh, supermarket um, um, detergents, etc. Um, just saying that it's having distribution challenges as well. So um, all of this is kind of swimming around. It, it, there's kind of obviously a lot of post-pandemic demand out there. It's holidays, so people are off on holidays. And there's a, there's a shortage of HGV drivers as well, which is partly down to, you know, people, um, you know, kind of um, European workers going back to Europe, whether that's a result of Brexit or the pandemic or both, who knows? Um, and also the fact that we had that pandemic and a pandemic and a little bit of uh, lingering effects from that. So um, yeah, we're still in a, a situation where those bottlenecks seem to be appearing, and, and hopefully they're. They're, they're transitory, but we do have some warnings, you know, from retailers that problems could persist until Christmas. Thanks very much for that, Leith. Coming up later, we'll also be looking at how investors can really understand what's in their portfolio from an ESG perspective and how they can check their fund managers are voting for change at company AGMs. But before that, the triple lock is back in the news. So this is the guarantee that the state pension will rise by the higher of either inflation, wage inflation, or two and a half percent. So soaring wage inflation figures mean that the pension could rise by around nine percent this year, although we don't know the exact figure yet. But that would obviously be a whopping payday for pensioners at a time when lots of working people have actually seen their wages stagnate. So, Tom, you're going to pick all this apart. But firstly, why are those wage inflation figures so high? Um, Yeah, so this is all because of the pandemic and lockdown. So, of course, in 2020, lots of people were furloughed. Lots of people also will have, have, have of course, lost their jobs. And so as a result, result, during that year, um, average wage growth was compressed, um, some would say artificially so, because of the economic circumstances that we were seeing. So roll forward to 2021. And thankfully, Everything is opening up. The economy looks much brighter. The future looks much brighter as well as a result of the vaccine programme. And we're seeing a spike in average wages. So the latest figures from the Office for National Statistics for the three months to June suggest that average earnings, including bonuses, grew by 8.8%. Now, when it comes to the triple lock, traditionally, the government has used 
the average earnings growth figure for the three months to July. So that's that'll be the next average earnings growth figure that we get from the ONS as a, as a reference point for the triple lock up rating. Now, we don't know what that is at this current point in time, but most economists are expecting it to fall somewhere in and around that 8% figure. Now, that's clearly good news for people who are in receipt of the state pension, but is potentially bad news for the Treasury because the Office for Budget Responsibility reckons that every one percentage point increase in the value of the state pension adds almost one billion to its costs. So that's a a spike in costs at a point in time when the Treasury can probably least afford it. And so as a result, we're having lots of rumours and speculation about whether or not that not the the triple lock will remain in place in its current form. And so it leaves the government in a bit of a tricky situation Mm. because they either have to scrap the triple lock, which is politically very difficult, or they have to honour it and um, somehow find the money for it somewhere. Is there a secret third option or not? Well, there may be a secret third option, yes. So it's it's up to the Secretary of State to decide um, which measure of earnings to use. So to use a measure of earnings that reflects what's going on in the wider economy. Now, previously, they've used this three months to July earning figure, but there's nothing actually in the rules that says they have to use that figure. And given at the moment, we're at the point at a point in time where the economy is opening up. And so we're probably going to see somewhere near the, the peak of the spike in average earnings growth around this time, then I suspect that bean counters in the Treasury will be looking at different measures of earnings to use. So the ONS, for example, has been pub- has started to publish an underlying earnings figure that strips out some of the impacts of the pandemic. And that might, that may, I mean, we don't know what that figure is going to be for, um, for, for July, but that may be somewhere between three and four mm-hmm. percent. They may also look to uh, look to look, look to use a, an earnings measure over a longer period of time. So rather than picking uh, the three months to July, you could spread it over the course of two or three years. And in that way, they could still say we've got a triple lock that links the state pension to the highest of average earnings uh, inflation or 2.5%, but they use just use a different measure of earnings. So that's one potential way around it. Whether or not voters will forgive them for that sleight of hand, of course, is, is another thing entirely. So we should know what they decide to do next month, presumably. But if mm. they did honour that kind of figure that's around 8 or 9%, um, that is going to create quite a big gap, isn't it, between those that are on the state pension that are getting that whopping pay rise and particularly much younger people who face the brunt of the downside of the pandemic in terms of being in some of those industries where they were more likely to lose their job or see their wages fall. Yeah, yeah. Inter- intergenerational fair- fairness or unfairness is a, is a big part of the debate around the, the triple lock. As you, as you say, lots of people will have seen, um, and particularly younger people will have seen their wages fall last year, whereas the triple lock meant that the state pension was operated by 2.5% during that period. And as you say, but dur- during this year, whatever happens, the, the state pension will continue to rise in line with earnings, assuming that the triple lock does remain in place. Um, a counter-argument to that, of course, is that presuming the, the triple lock stays in place in perpetuity, then any ed- younger people will also benefit from a bigger state pension if the triple lock remains in place for year after year after year, because they will eventually receive that payment as well. Um, I think that the, the slight counter to that, of course, is that generally gov- the government is looking to spend less money on um, on paying state pensions to, to people. And so if you 
if you push up the cost today, then there is a risk that potentially state pension ages in the future will increase further and faster. But we we don't know what what future governments are going to are going to do with the state pension. Um, and as as things stand, that that intergenerational fairness argument, if the system stayed in place, wouldn't necessarily be an issue. But I suspect it would be if we as if we uh, if we kept it in place going forward. So we'll get you back on when they've made their decisions so mm. we can pick all that apart. Sounds good. So crypto fever is showing no signs of calming down and the headlines are still full of Bitcoin news and there's still a surge in people trading crypto. And now a big name, PayPal, is getting in on the action. So Laith, what's going to be happening? Yeah, so um, PayPal, which is obviously the big kind of US payments um, operator, um, is coming to the UK and opening a crypto trading service um, so that you can um, buy and sell a number of cryptocurrencies. That in itself um, isn't new. You can already do that um, through various um, platforms that offer crypto trading. Uh, but what's what's probably significant uh, about this is that it's PayPal doing it. Um, and that's because um, what PayPal does is really function as uh, an intermediary between um, businesses and consumers and facilitates payments. So um, it's likely that that is the route that they will be going down. That's what they've done in the US. So they launched the trading service in the US at the back end of last year. Um, and then earlier on this year, um, they then um, started you know, using uh, their clouds in the market to allow crypto transactions to take place between consumers um, and, and businesses. So I suspect that's probably where, where we're going to be going to um, in the UK in the not too, too distant future. Um, now, there's a big question about how many businesses are going to want to accept cryptocurrency um, as payment. Um, and there's probably an even bigger question about, about those who will accept cryptocurrency as payment, how many of them are actually going to then to retain it into cryptocurrency and how many are just going to convert it back into normal currency, um, at which point it kind of starts to be a little bit of a sales gimmick because if you've got kind of consumers at one end who are getting paid in you know pounds euros dollars whatever converting their money into bitcoin to pay a um, business uh, for a good or service and that business then res- receives that cryptocurrency and exchanges it back straight into pounds euros or or or, or dollars then you kind of ask what is the point of the transaction all it's all it's doing is adding kind of fees and complexity um, so I think that's kind of where we are with um, cryptocurrency at the moment. It doesn't really have a big function in, in the real economy, partly because it is so volatile. And if you're a business, why, um, you know, unless you're, 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 you're Tesla uh, and have, you know, kind of money to burn, why would you hold cryptocurrency on, on your balance sheet? Um, which is kind of because it's, it's so risky. It could you know, easily fall 50% in a couple of months. Um, and in the meantime, you still got to pay your bills. And unfortunately, you're not going to be paying your bills, your electricity, your heating, your rent in, in, in cryptocurrency at the moment. Um, so I think it's it's interesting that PayPal's coming to the UK. It's interesting they've chosen the UK as the market that they're going to the first after the US, which suggests that they think we're we're a bit crypto crazy over here, which is which is um, you know perhaps borne out by some of the stuff we've seen over the last year. Uh, but they are coming, and I guess it's another another feather in in the cap of the kind of uh, the kind of the, the crypto bulls who think the crypto is the way of the future. Uh, so I'm a bit confused. Why why would PayPal bother to pay for all of the in- infrastructure to put this in place if actually the pickup probably isn't going to be that great among businesses? 
Well, I guess ultimately they probably have a different view and they're probably a bit more, um, I guess, um, you know, kind of positive on on the cryptocurrency markets. And they, I mean, they're a big tech provider, so they're already kind of um, plugged into that market. Um, Also, in terms of crypto trading, which is kind of the, the initial service that they're launching, that is currently big business. You know, we know that there is lots of crypto trading going on. And then actually facilitating the payment between businesses and consumers is something PayPal already does. So it probably isn't a huge kind of hop, skip and a jump for them to kind of for them kind of facilitating payments in traditional currencies to doing it in cryptocurrency. And, you know, I guess, you know, like a lot of people, they are perhaps thinking about hedging their business for the future. They're looking at crypto trading and thinking, you know, actually, this really this really is taking off. Um, and and they're thinking that actually kind of they need, you know, as one of the kind of big providers of um, a payment system, they need to be a part of it. They need to make sure that they keep their part of the overall payments pie, even if it does lurch towards cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency has been one of the big talking points of 2021. Another, of course, has been soaring house prices, with many putting this down to the stamp duty holiday announced by the Chancellor last year. But a report seems to bust that myth and put it down to other factors. So, Laura, what is that report saying? Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's from the Resolution Foundation, um, which does a lot of kind of data crunching and reports. Um, And they looked at this rise in house prices, which everyone has assumed has been linked to this tax break that we've had from stamp duty, which is Mm. now obviously um, being phased out. Um, But they found that they that they don't actually think that that is the case, that that they think that the surge in house prices would have happened without that government policy. So they looked at um, they break down different areas and looked at price increases, house price increases in those local authorities. And the logic would be that you would expect to see a larger house price rise in the areas where there are more expensive homes or it's more expensive to buy a property, because that's where the area where people have the most to benefit from that stamp duty break. Um, but they actually found the opposite was true. So um, across the entire UK, prices rose by about 13% from June 2020 to 2021. Um, but if we look at the, if we break up the entire of the UK into five different sections, um, and we look at the the area where that had the least to benefit from the stamp duty holiday, um, prices rose by 13% there. And then if we compare that to the areas that had higher house prices, and so therefore had the most to benefit from the stamp duty holiday, prices only rose by 7% there. So would, would, their, would their argument be then that the government would, would have been better off from, a, I guess, a, a raising money, a fiscal perspective, if they if they just hadn't, hadn't changed stamp duty at all? Because presumably if things would have been the same, then the government would have would have raked in raked in more money from property sales. Yeah, so that's basically the question that they raise at the end of this report as to whether it was a good use of government spending. Mm. So it's estimated to have cost the government just under five billion pounds in lost stamp duty receipts, lost revenue, um, and they're questioning whether that was actually a good use of money because if 
the outcome of that was stimulating the housing market, more people moving um, and generating more stamp duty receipts from people moving, then that's fine. But their argument is that it's likely that that would have happened anyway, and down to a few different reasons. The first is that lots of people saved a lot of money over um, mm. COVID and lockdowns. If they didn't see their income impacted um, and they had a massive cut to what they were spending money on, then they saw a big increase in their savings and they could afford to move house. The second was that there was just a shift in demand from people to move out of smaller um, city based homes um, and into much bigger properties further out from cities. Now they could work from home. And the third, which is a big factor, is that mortgage rates are insanely cheap at the moment. Um, and so their argument really is that those three factors alone without the stamp duty holiday would have led to this big surge in activity and in prices in the market. So that's the UK experience. Um, how, how have measures like this worked in other countries? Yeah, so the report looked at other kind of developed nations and saw the same house price growth and spike in activity and shift away from cities to more kind of bigger properties in slightly more rural areas in most of the other markets it looked at. So Germany, the US, Canada, France and Australia. Um, Each of those countries had slightly different kind of stimulus measures for the housing market. But it's interesting that the same trend was seen there. And what's also interesting is we only have anecdotal information at the moment. But so far, anecdotally, the um, information coming from estate agents and others in the housing market is that since the stamp duty holiday ended, there hasn't been a massive fall off the cliff in terms of the volume of um, house purchases or in terms of prices. Now, obviously, we need some actual hard data to back that up. But that would If that were true and that was borne out, that would tend to support the view that the stamp duty holiday actually didn't have as much impact as we thought. Thanks, Laura. So another big topic at the moment is ESG investing, which is becoming more mainstream and talked about among investors. Laura spoke to Georgia Stewart at Tomello about how investors can assess what's in their fund portfolios from an ESG point of view and how to hold fund managers to account. So, uh, Georgia, if you could just explain to us a little bit about what your company does and how they're working in the ethical space. Sure. So, Tomello is really a platform that helps people to understand more about where their money is going. So, if you invest into a fund, for example, that fund is typically invested in lots of individual companies. Um, And so, what we do is make that transparent. We help you understand when you invest in a fund, which companies your money is subsequently being invested in, and we help you have a voice at those companies. So your fund manager, who is managing which companies are invested in the fund, is also having conversations with those companies and voting at those companies' AGM on really important issues like gender equality and human rights and, of course, climate change. And as an underlying investor, we want you to have that transparency about where your money is going and how your money is being used to influence change at those companies and to be more participatory and be able to have a voice in that process. And that's so interesting because I think that's something investors are so keen to have more of at the moment, to be more involved in those end companies and and to have a say. But you also do a lot of stuff around transparency, around um, ESG, so environmental, societal and um, sorry, social and governance work, don't you, with companies. So what are the kind of trends that you're seeing there at the moment? So I guess this comes really to stewardship, um, which is probably worth mentioning. 
when people talk about ESG, a lot of the focus is on asset allocation. So if you're talking about whether a fund is ESG friendly, for example, then the likelihood is that that person is thinking about, well, is the fund manager picking companies on the basis of their environmental, social or governance factors? That is a really, really important part of the ESG story. But what we are focused on is what comes after, which is summed up as stewardship. It's effectively, how is that fund manager influencing change at the companies that they have decided to invest in? Because when they're invested, they have a voice in the boardroom effectively. And that's really what stewardship is. It's about the conversations they're having with the management team about how they're voting on ESG issues at those companies' annual general meetings where all shareholders get to have a voice on how the company is run. And so obviously asset allocation is important, but once you've decided to invest in a company within a fund, when your fund managers decided to invest, it's then important how they use their weight as an investor. And that's really when ESG comes into stewardship, which is... Um, as an investor, you might get a company to focus more on how they handle human rights in the supply chain or how they are transitioning to a net zero economy um, or how they are dealing with conflicts that might exist between the CEO and the chair or the fact that there aren't enough women on the board or, or issues like this, which are important from an environmental and social perspective, but are also really important from a performance perspective. Um, you obviously, as a fund manager, want companies in your fund to do well because that improves the overall fund performance so as an underlying investor investing through an investment platform in a fund run by a fund manager you want to know that your fund manager is pushing forward these issues and that they are dealing with them in the way that that you want to based on the future that you want to see and, and that you want your money to be part of and you talked a little bit there you mentioned the kind of pathway that goes investor investor platform fund manager company and so it can sometimes feel like end investors are a bit far removed from that process so how can they get more involved and have kind of more awareness of of what their fund manager is voting for yeah, so that, that's exactly it. The chain is really long. And sometimes it's even longer than what you said, because you might have a financial advisor in there somewhere and, and a fund manager might invest in other fund managers and in a kind of fund of fund structure. So you have this ridiculously long chain. However, the person putting the money in at the end of the chain, the individual investor or even a pension member, is, is they're providing the capital to the system. Their money is absolutely essential to make any of the other actions happen. And so we believe, as you've um, alluded to there, that that individual should have more transparency and more power over where the money's going and, and what world it's being used to create. And so... In terms of how you can have more transparency, I think it, we at Mellow, for example, work with investment platforms to help them show their underlying investors what companies are inside a fund and to help them ask individual investors what they think about issues going on at those companies. So we have these things called APIs, which are basically data feeds, but it allows investment platforms to kind of build experiences for the end investor to say, hey, you're invested in Tesla through this fund. Tesla's annual general meeting is coming up. There's a question on human rights. What do you think your fund manager should fund manager should do and as an individual investor through your investment platform you can then tell us what you think and we're going to feed that back to your fund manager so that for the first time fund managers actually have a view of what their underlying investors want and think and what their values are and obviously fund managers have voted at AGMs on companies they own for a long period of time but do you think that there's more enthusiasm from them now to engage on a on a wider range of issues rather than just voting on for example chief executive pay or or um, dividend uh, policies 
Yeah, definitely. I think that stewardship is really coming to the fore in terms of the role it plays in ESG. I think the conversation has always been about asset allocation and now it's becoming more and more so about, okay, what's the fund manager actually doing to push their companies forward? I think stewardship is becoming more important for fund managers, partially because of the regulation that's coming in. They're being forced to report. So those that haven't really paid much attention to stewardship before now really have to, or at least they have to tell the world that they're not paying any attention to it, which doesn't look great if they're trying to be picked by platforms or by institutional investors. Um, And then I guess the last part is this kind of a concept of universal owner theory. They call it in the um, field of investment, but it's the idea that some fund managers, if you take, you know, LGM or BlackRock or Vanguard, are so massive and they have so many assets invested across so many different companies that the only way they can benefit is if all companies improve and, and the world essentially becomes a better place because they're not investing in one sector. They're not hedging their bets. They're really invested across everything in these massive passive indexes. And so the theory says that as a fund manager, they should be trying to improve every one of these underlying companies because that's how they're going to make good performance. Because if one company kind of doesn't deal with its climate change footprint, then another company is probably going to suffer from that. So really, they need all of them to improve together. And I think that is what us also pushed to focus on stewardship. But if you look from a retail investor or a pension member perspective, we can see like with the, the GameStop crisis, for example, or extravaganza, I don't know what you want to call that. But, um, you know, people invested in GameStop and when they then found that they couldn't vote at GameStop's AGM, you know, people were horrified because they that's a right that an underlying shareholders should have and often doesn't really have access to, to through the platforms that they're invested in just because it hasn't been a priority. And I think now the idea of investor democracy and shareholder democracy, um, thanks to a lot of new startups, um, is really prevalent and and retail investors and pension members are going to demand more when it comes to that type of thing. And so I think one of the things that we've seen in the um, ethical ESG industry is um, a lot of new product launched in that area. So as an end investor, how can you make sure that um, those fund managers are actually investing ethically rather than just slapping an ethical label on their fund? That's a great question. It's really difficult to answer. Um, I mean, I would certainly argue for getting transparency in the first instance. You need to know as a retail investor what companies are sitting inside that fund. And so you should be asking your investment platform or at least your fund manager to give you that transparency. You should be able to find a full list of up-to-date holdings um, as opposed to just the top 10. And so that's a starting point. And then you can make up your own mind about what counts as ethical or not. I think a challenge with the word ethical is that it means something different to everyone in the world, pretty much. is Does ethical mean animal welfare? Does it mean human rights, gender equality? Does it mean dealing with climate change? Um, and, and, you know, the answer to that question is really going to depend on your background and the standpoint that, that you've taken on not just finance, but other things in life as well. So having transparency at least allows people to make their own decisions. Um, I guess the other side of things is that fund managers are going to increasingly use um, something called ESG ratings, um, which which is going to allow people when they look at a fund to work out what rating has it got on a human rights standpoint, what rating has it got on a gender standpoint. And I think you need to know what's important to you because in reality, it's going to be very hard to find a fund that ticks every single box um, and and still has kind of diversification um, for you. So I guess getting transparency, 
make up your own mind about what ethical means to you and then finding a fund manager that can fulfill that by using the ESG ratings that that they are putting on there. And increasingly there's regulation now to try and push back on greenwashing. It definitely happens still, um, but with the regulation coming in from the EU, at least the labeling now has to be a bit more stringent and standardized than it was before. So I hope it's gonna become clearer for consumers over the next year or so. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Georgia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And finally, we've got Jenny Owen back with our favourite strange money story of the week. And this week, we're bringing back paper tax discs, Jenny. Yeah, so since 2014, road tax discs have been abolished and replaced with an electronic system. Um, But you may either have saved them up in your car or in the back of a drawer somewhere. If you haven't thrown them away, you might have made yourself a bit of cash, amazingly. In May, five 1922 to 1924 tax discs sold for £1,666, despite showing signs of damp and the markings fading. Apparently, having discs for the same vehicle is quite rare, which may explain why they fetched a bumper price. Um, One of the rarer discs um, that can be found out there is a Welsh car tax disc. And a fairly damaged specimen went for about £120 on eBay a month or so ago, despite the fact it's expired on December 31st in 1972. So if you have a collection saved up, even if it you know, includes a few earlier discs or, or ones more recently, it may be worth taking a look and seeing if you can sell to a tax disc fanatic. A collection of 14, which all belong to the same car, according to the seller, made £64 recently. So get onto eBay and see what you can sell. Thanks very much, Jenny. That's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Next week, Dan will be back from his summer holidays to bring us all the markets, news and more. In the meantime, if you have anything you want to discuss on the podcast, please email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.